0: So once again, uh, welcome, we're glad you're here, and uh, for those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Bill Hilligans. I'm the uh, youth director here at the Cedar Lake Campus, and been doing youth ministry for a long time, and I uh, love it, still love being around teenagers, I know it's kind of weird, but it's all right, it's all good in my world, so that's what matters, right? No, just kidding. Uh, Last, if you would, turn in your Bibles, you'll see John 4 is the passage that we're going to look at. We're going to uh, break it down, go into the passage, jump out, jump around a little bit. But anyway, it's going to be focused on John 4. And uh, So let me just pray a moment, and then we can get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, and I just pray right now that you settle us down. Settle my heart down, settle all of our hearts down, that... Uh, Your word will speak. Speak through me, speak to us, and Lord, may we not leave it here, but may we take it out into the world and uh, live it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, uh, Tony started a two-part series, and the first part was on the uh, Legion, the man with the many demons, and uh, how Jesus' love and mercy uh, uh, transformed that life. And as I was thinking about this week, I was thinking about the Samaritan woman, and I... Came into ministry later on in my life, and I was in the car business prior to that. And one of the propaganda stunts that I saw car dealers do was they they would have these uh, ways to try to get you in to buy their product. And they would put a tent out in their parking lot, and they would put cars underneath it, and they would say, Giant tent sale. Now, for me, I didn't really understand why people would be gravitated to a tent sale it's usually hot outside or it's cold outside. And if I want to buy a new car, I want to do it in a showroom that's climate controlled and the cars are shiny and bright. But I think the biggest one was they would put these giant blow up animals outside and they would say sale. And I know for myself, I immediately gravitated to that car dealership and I just wanted to pull in and buy a car because they had a green dinosaur or something. It's like, yes, this is where I want to buy my car. And I didn't really understand why they did that, but it's to grab your attention and to get you to come in. And sometimes in the church, we do the same thing. If you look at church signs and I know if some of you like church signs, that's good. I personally don't. I think a lot of them are cheesy. And, uh, before I became a Christian, one of the signs I noticed was, um, they have my favorite one is C H and then blank, blank C H. You know which one I'm talking about? And it says, what's missing? And you just stare at it and you go, I don't know. And on the bottom it says, U-R-C-H-U-R-C-H. That really never drew me to that church. I go, oh, I'm missing. I better go. You know, they're going to report me or something that I'm missing. No, it, it didn't draw me in. But I think in the world what we do is we have things like that. And we want to draw in. And sometimes we do that in the church as well. But in the last two weeks, last week and this week, what we'll really see is how Jesus teaches us that ministry needs to be done. And so the message this morning is life at the well. And it's about the Samaritan woman. So let's start out with uh, verse 1. And we'll go from there. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. We see Jesus uh, here, and he is... uh, being looked at by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and they see that he is baptizing him and his disciples are baptizing more disciples than John. It was about the time that John would have Been put in prison and later beheaded for his faith. And so this is the time period that it happened. But we see in a parentheses verse that Jesus wasn't actually baptizing. And you may ask the reason why. First thing that came to my mind was, you know, if Jesus was to baptize somebody, he would baptize them in the name of the Father, me, and the Son, or uh, the Holy Spirit. But that really wasn't why. Jesus was not baptizing because Jesus understood that the new covenant of baptism is centered all around Jesus. It is about what Jesus has done in the lives of people and what is doing in the lives. And we saw that a few weeks ago here, the many different stories of people's lives who had been redeemed by Jesus and what Jesus was doing. So Jesus is, is the center of this new covenant of baptizing, uh, of baptism. And it's a testimony of a life that has lived for him. So his disciples would be baptizing. And the Pharisees are seeing this going on and they're saying, hey, something's happening with this Jesus, dude. And so Jesus says, well, now it's time to move. So him and his disciples move on to Galilee. Only one problem, Samaria is in the way. After a distance, about 30 miles, he comes to a well in Samaria. It's noon, he is exhausted, and his disciples leave him, and we'll see later, they go get some food. Samaria is a part of the country that good Jewish people would not go. Now, I'm not a big Bears fan, but some of you are. And just an illustration that may help you understand this is if that A bear fan was going to the upper peninsula of Michigan to do snowboarding. The shortest way, my understanding, is to go through Wisconsin. But you, being a good bear fan, would probably go around that dreaded state where the Packers are and go around all of Wisconsin into Canada and then drop down to the upper peninsula because you would want to avoid that area. That's what good Jews would do with Samaria. They would go around because if they entered into Samaria... This area, if you shook a Samaritan's hand, your hand is now unclean. If they patted you on the back, your back is now unclean. And there's a ritual cleansing that you would have to go through. This was a part of the country that you did not want to go to. And the Samaritans were forced to move there in 722. They were part Jewish and part whatever else. They were not a, a solid... Breed as the Jews would see them. The Samaritans, though, they thought of themselves as faithful descendants of Israel. Even though there was intermarriage had taken place, they thought of themselves as faithful. They only believed in the five first books of the Bible, the Pentateuch uh, that Moses had written. So they put Moses on this high pedestal, but they also put the uh, patriarchs uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob All on this high pedestal. They worshipped Jehovah God. But they took Jehovah God and they added to Jehovah. And we see this in the United States today. We see a lot of people taking a little bit of the Bible and they say, well, I like this part of the Bible, so I'll add this. Now, I don't like that, so I'm going to take that. And we kind of mix and match a religion to fit ourselves. So what the Samaritans had done with Jehovah, they had taken this idol and put it in there because that worked and that, and so the Samaritans had kind of this cluttered up religion, but they were faithful to it. On the other hand, the Jewish people only worshiped Jehovah God. They were faithful to Jehovah. They did not intermarry a good Jew, would marry a good Jew. That's the way it was. You would not marry outside of your race. Now, if any of you are Dutch in here, you know what I'm talking about. You don't marry outside of the Dutch race. And if you do, you get in trouble. I'm married to Irish. Anyway, um, the two groups, though, the Samaritans and the Jews, they did not like each other. And there was this hatred and this prejudice against one another. So when Jesus goes into Samaria, he is going into a tough area. But when I ask you that question, and this question I ask you this morning, some of you may in your hearts feel this tug, and a lot of you, if you were to answer right away, you probably would not answer honestly. But if I ask you the question, who are you prejudiced against? What would that look like in your life? A few years ago, we went on a mission trip, and we had a... Uh, I had some teens and we were at O'Hare, uh, at a hotel near O'Hare the night before and we were talking about the culture we were going going to go into. And I shared with them at that time that there was a certain culture that I really struggled with that. I really resented that I really pushed back on. And, uh, they, they were kind of astonished. They said, we can't believe that. I said, guys, I'm a sinner just like you, and this is a whole process. I am working on this. But there's a hint of prejudice in many of our lives, and and it comes in these subtle little remarks that we make, and we see it. Why would you do ministry in an area like that? That's way too dangerous to do ministry. Uh, We avoid certain areas because we stereotype people. And here's the truth, friends. We do stereotype people. If you are a Hispanic male living in the inner city of Chicago, a lot of us think that you are probably in a gang, probably with the Latin kings, and who knows what. And we put this moniker on there, and we do it with African-American males as well that live in the inner city. You know, they probably are drug dealers and pimps, and, and we get that whole stereo system put on there. And when we do that, we start to cause resistance in our own hearts for those people. But even closer to home, we do it. You know, if you live in Lowell, you're a farmer and you got farmer mentality and that's about all you got. And so we start to think that way. And if you're from Crown Point, well, you think you're a lot better than us anyway, so we don't want to have anything to do with you. And if you're from Cedar Lake, well, you probably don't wear shoes half the year. That's just the way our mentality goes. And and we do these subtle little things, don't we? Ah, Cedar Tucky. We don't think about that. But what are we doing in essence? We are putting down Cedar Lake and we are putting down the great state of Kentucky by, by forming that. And, and I'm not chastising you. If you use Cedar Tucky, I don't care. But what my, my example is, is that we start to build parameters. We start to build subtle little prejudices in our mind that we are better than them, whatever that may look like. And that happens in our schools all the time. Our our students get labels because of the certain ways they dress or, or the certain sports they play. If you don't play football, you play golf. You must be a wimp. You know, we have these stereotypes and we form these things that there's. They get identities with the life choices they make, whether they're good life choices or they're bad life choices. Our students get these identities. And we start to avoid because we form this prejudice. We claim no prejudice because if we did claim prejudice, that wouldn't be Christian. And so we allow that just to be still in our heart and to seed and to grow. So when I ask the question, who are you prejudiced against? Who would that be? Who, who do you think that you are better than? Who, who would you not want to go spend time with? You see, Jesus here enters a part of the country that was not a place that he should go by standards if you're a good abiding Jew. And he went to a part of a country that he wasn't really welcome because he was a Jew. When was the last time you went somewhere that was uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? You see, Jesus is exhausted. It's about noon. He sits down. We see the humanness of Jesus. And so in verse 7, our story continues. And it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I love the response of the Samaritan woman here. How is it that you a Jew? Now, how did she know that Jesus was a Jew? How did she know he was 100% Jewish? And I, I, one of the clear signs would be maybe his accent. He, he would have spoken in an Aramaic accent, and the Samaritans had both a Jewish and Aramaic kind of combined language, so their uh, accents may have been a little bit different. You know, if you go up to Minnesota, they have the, the Canadian accent. If you go to Tennessee, they have the twang. And we can tell what part of the country they come from. I think this may have been why... She could tell that Jesus was a Jew. And so she looks at him and she says, how is it that you a Jew? Very interesting. And then she goes into the next part. And she said, how is it that you a Jew would ask me a woman? You see, women were regarded in a very low status in the Middle East culture. Women at this time basically were good for having children. Hopefully they were male children. And if not, there there was really not a lot of use for women. And that's how they were treated. So she is seeing this. And she is seeing the differences. And prejudice is not seeing our differences, but prejudice is reacting negatively to our differences. And this woman reacts not in a negative way, but in a shocked way to say, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me, a woman? You are breaking all sorts of boundaries there, Jesus. The question that the woman asked shows the intense bigotry and prejudice and hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. But it also sets in motion the marvelous freedom of Jesus exiting from that bigotry, from those prejudices. And we see Jesus in Scripture telling the story about the good Samaritan and the Samaritan left leper who came back to thank Jesus. It shows this with the Samaritan interaction going on, it would show the Jewish people that the Samaritans were worthy of the gospel, same as the Jews, that there was not one set of uh, gender or, or uh, color or anything, nationality, that is not someone that Jesus can reach. Salvation is for anyone and for all who come. So in verse 10, he says this, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying this, the gift of God is Jesus. John 3, 16, For God gave his only begotten Son. It's a free gift. God gave his only begotten Son. Isaiah 9, 5, To us a Son is given. And in Romans 6, 23, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That Samaritan woman that day, did not realize a few things that were going on in her life. Number one, she was talking to the Son of God in flesh. God in flesh form. She was at a well in uh, Samaria talking to God. God in flesh, the Savior of her soul, the one who would soon die for her sins. And at this point, she did not realize that the emptiness of her life She had come to get water the void that she was living in and the need. She did not understand that what she did understand was this. She was talking to a Jewish man who was asking her for a drink. He was physically tired from a journey and she is stunned that he would even talk to her. Now he offers her this living water without a jug and what we have to understand here is that many times when we've come to the cross and and if you've trusted Christ, as savior, you don't realize the emptiness of your need until you're there. You sense a emptiness in your life. But when you finally get there, you realize the immense depravity of your life. And too many times we once we trust Christ, as savior, we take the cross for granted in our own lives. It becomes something that we want to hold on to. And in the tired, the weariness of our lives, we miss the opportunity to share what Jesus has done. In our fear and our timidity uh, of our lives, we don't share him because we're afraid of of getting hurt. We're afraid of getting made fun of. We're, We're afraid of the peer pressure. We're afraid of the prejudices because we don't want to go to that area. And what happens here is salvation becomes reserved for us who deserve it. And that's our mindset. But in reality, none of us deserve the cross of Christ. And so as we go on in our text in verse 11, Jesus says this, or the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? These verses are just packed with a whole bunch of stuff, and it's hard sometimes to separate and to decipher, kind of like Ralphie when he gets the uh, little uh, Orphan Annie decoder thing. He is so happy that he can figure out the code, and he goes in there and he figures it out, and he breaks it all down, and it says, Drink more Ovaltine, and I think his response is, That's a crummy message. Well, when we break this all down in a few minutes, we're going to see that this is the greatest message ever told. But we do need to take some time. Because Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, we, we know the gift of God. If you are here today and you have trusted Jesus Christ as a Savior from your sins, you know that that is a gift from God. But she, the Samaritan woman, does not know that right now. And he says, you see, I can give you this living water. Jesus is beginning to reveal his glory to her very slowly. The woman is starting to show the greatness of her need, and we are starting to see the greatness of God's gift to her and to the world. And just like the Samaritans, we are worthy of condemnation. There is no one in here who, who says, I don't need Jesus. But yet, even though we are Uh, In need of condemnation, Jesus loves us, and we are loved by him. Everyone needs salvation, and it's just really whether we're going to accept it or not. I'm in the process of reading a book on Ted Williams, probably the greatest hitter ever to live and to play baseball. And Ted, I haven't finished the book, so I don't know how his life ends. But at one point in one chapter, his friend Bobby Doerr, who played with him, said, Ted, you need to think about Jesus Christ. And Ted's response at that moment was, I don't need Jesus. And he said a bunch of swear words, Christ. When I read that, I said, oh, Ted. But I've also been in conversations with people and, and talking about Jesus Christ. And, and I've told them about Jesus Christ. And they'll look at me and they'll say, hey, I'm good. And they walk away. You know, it's not how we reject Jesus. It's whether we reject him and Jesus is for all. And we need to accept him not to reject that. And that's where the Samaritan woman is right now. She is gradually moving to faith in Jesus Christ. And, uh, Jesus starts to talk about this. Well, the Samaritans loved and they worshiped Moses. They thought he was the bomb and, uh, they loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they put these patriarchs on this high high pedestal. So when Jesus responds to her about this, she asks the question of uh, Jesus. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's still thinking physical water here versus spiritual water. Jacob is central to the covenant identity of the Samaritan people. That is their link to Jehovah. That is their link to God. That's how they have figured their religion out. He was the last in the line of the great patriarchs. The beginning of a new line for them, the line of the elect. So Jacob is very key in the Samaritan religion. And uh, God chose Jacob because of the way he lived. Crucial for Samaritans is the name of Jacob, which defines the people and the covenant. So, If Jesus here makes a claim that he is greater than Jacob, he not only says that he is more pious than Jacob or or that he is more virtuous than Jacob, he also breaks that covenant line. He says, I am superior to your covenant. And what happens too many times, I think when we start to share about Jesus Christ and someone starts to share their religion, we want to bash their religion. We want to say, Oh no, no, you got to believe this. You got to believe that you got to believe. No, this is wrong. That's wrong. It's not what we see Jesus doing here. Jesus is using spiritual water versus physical water. And he is showing her the need for him, not the wrong in their thinking. And, uh, Remember, last week, friends, it's not for us to try and save people. God's going to do that. The Holy Spirit's going to work in it. We are to be used by God. We're not going to save anybody. And so, for Jesus, uh, he is allowing himself, the Holy Spirit, to work in the life of this woman. And he goes on to uh, explain the water reference. Jesus speaks about a water that we will no longer thirst, and this water becomes a fountain, a fountain which joyously overflows, and a fountain that gushes into eternal life. Can I just say this? Our most immediate and desperate need is the need for a Savior. And when you trust that, when you understand that you are a sinner and that you have a need for a Savior, and that Savior, Jesus, died on the cross for you. When you acknowledge that, there is this divine union with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And when you look in Ephesians, this Holy Spirit overflows, and and it continues with us to eternity. It's our guarantee, the Holy Spirit living in us. And so Jesus contrasts Jacob's water against his water. And what happens here is a really interesting dynamic, which maybe we miss. The woman makes a choice to leave Jacob and to follow Jesus, but she's thinking water that she's never going to have to drink again. She is making him move towards Christ. And I I don't know about you, but sometimes when I have shared the gospel with someone, I'm sharing the gospel and and they're starting to put a little bit of a, a, a pushback. I'm going, no, come on, come on. We got to get this done now. You know, I don't want you walking out of the door today, not being a believer in Jesus. And, and so I'm pushing it at this moment. Jesus has this great conversation going and all of a sudden he switches direction. I'm going, Jesus, no, you got to, You're doing good. And he switches completely around. He switches the course of the conversation. And in fact, he's responding to a request of living water, but he reveals more of himself. He tells her something about her private life. Now, think about this. If Jesus had walked up to the well and he had looked at the Samaritan woman and he had said, you woman, you're all jacked up. You got a messed up life, man. And I know this because I am the son of God. What she would have done is she would have looked at him and said, you pious, arrogant Jew. Get out of my life. And maybe even hit him with the jug. I don't know. But Jesus did not do that. And so as this conversation is happening, he, they're having a great talk about Jesus. She just doesn't know it yet. And with this statement about her private life, she realizes that he is more than just a regular guy at the well. Her response is, sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. Now, this prophet, you may think, well, she's thinking that he's like uh, Isaiah or somebody like that, uh, you know, foretelling God, you know, coming and stuff like that. In this instant, it was more the prophet meant, I see you as a holy man. You are different. There is something about you that is different. Isn't that way our lives should be when we trust Christ, that people see difference in our lives? She is seeing something different in Jesus that she has never seen before. And she is moving in the right direction of our faith. And sometimes we don't understand where our faith journey is going. Or or maybe when we're sharing the gospel of Christ with others, we start to get frustrated and we say, this is too hard, this is too tough, I don't want to keep going. You know, my life's uh, all messed up. All of our stories are different. And uh, this week I had a chance with... Uh, one of the people that were baptized and, and hearing their story, their story is so much different than my story. But guess what? We both ended up at the foot of the cross. That's the amazing Jesus and what he can do in our lives. And we're going to sometimes have up and downs in our spiritual life, but we need to have the focus be on Christ at all times. And when my life gets jacked up and I have all these other distractions and Christ is not in the center, it's way out of line. A true characteristic of the Christian faith is when we focus on him. And the Samaritan woman here, she thought she had it all figured out. But then Jesus showed up. And Jesus is the game changer. And now her focus switches to Jesus. So Jesus says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation, Jesus, Jewish, that's where our salvation is from. But the hour is coming, and it's now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And here, see Jesus. He takes the worship places and he puts them aside. He puts them on the other side of worship. You see, it's not about the place of worship. It's not where you're going to worship. It's about who you're going to worship. And the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. When you come to know Christ as Savior, that's when you will worship in spirit and truth. And truth. To worship in spirit and truth, you need to be spiritually alive. And that is the gift from God, which is the living water. And worshiping in spirit connects us to the fact that God is spirit. And worshiping in truth is connected with Jesus, because Jesus is our Savior. And that's the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Who Jesus is becomes revealed in the more we worship. And it's not only about Sunday mornings. We come in here Sunday mornings and you could come to both service and say, I worship twice this week. It's not about that. It is about that. And this is a great gathering of friends and family. And we need to continue to do that as Hebrew says. But to divine worship, it should be your life. It should be your every day. What are you doing? How are you focusing on Jesus in every part of your life? Because that's when we'll grow. It's not only about the singing. It is about the singing, but it's not only about the singing. It's about the praying, but it's not only about the praying. It's about mission trips, but it's not only about mission trips. It's about Sunday morning, but it's also not about Sunday morning. It's about serving others, but it's also not about serving others it is about your lifestyle and every aspect of your lifestyle that is worship and that's where we need to be and we are all going to worship something there's no doubt about it some of you and i struggle with this confession time worshiping a sports team maybe it's a sinful addiction that you worship it could be your child my kids are the greatest kids in the world I love my kids. If something happened to my kids, it would be the end of my world. Are you putting your children over God? Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. I've got to have a boyfriend. i got to have a girlfriend. I see this in uh, middle school, high school a lot. I, I, if I don't have a boyfriend enough, I don't have a girlfriend, you know, I'm, I'm not complete. No, you're, you're complete. Read Psalm 139. You were made complete. You're good to go. But sometimes we put that over God, we need that. We need my spouse. My wife is so awesome. So what happened or what would I do? I start to put my wife over God. Maybe maybe you want to be the best, the smartest kid in school and you'll do anything. Even forget about Jesus to be the smartest. Or, or maybe you're the smartest Bible person in your Bible study. I got all it's me. No, it's Jesus. And we can get so many of these things out of line and, and messed up. What takes place in your life over God? When we are worshiping God, uh, something over God, we are not worshiping in spirit and truth. We can only worship in spirit and truth if we have given our lives to Christ and then we put focus on Jesus as the sinner. So where are you at on that journey? Are you like the Samaritan woman who thinks that she's got it all figured out? She had religion figured out. She knew she was at Jacob's well. It was a holy place. Everybody had come there, the livestock. This was holy place. She had that figured out. Or are you like the Samaritan woman who is sitting at the feet of Jesus, continually asking questions, pursuing Jesus, no matter what life looks like? When we have it all figured out, we miss the last part of the story. We miss the last part of the story of this jacked up Samaritan woman. Uh, and she goes to speak the truth of Jesus. In verse 27, just then the disciples came back. Back from the Seven Eleven. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. You're talking with a woman, dude. Now, they didn't say that in the text anyway, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar. Think about that for a moment. She left her jar in the morning. She got up her main job, main responsibility, main focus, go to the well with the jar, get water. And what does she do when she meets Jesus? She leaves the jar. Jesus changed her life. She went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This loose living Samaritan woman who had engaged Jesus in conversation about water wells and worship. Now she realizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And at that moment, she leaves her water jug, the most precious thing she had that day, and she rushes back to town, a town where she was probably used and abused. Men had used her for for what they wanted. And it sounds like she probably had never really found true love. And where maybe all she cared about was her needs being met. Well, this man left me, so I'm going to marry this man I need, I have need. And she rushes back to the town, and she returns to the town to share this new type of love that she has seen in Jesus at the well. A love that cares for others and not for self. A love that was displayed by Jesus. And now what does she do? She not only leads uh, the people back to Jesus, but to salvation in him. Our lives are many times like the Samaritan woman life. They're jacked up with sin. They're all out of skew with religion, hurts and pains. And all of that starts to distort the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth of Christ that will not put prejudices on people or parameters on who we will share the love of Christ with. Our lives too need to be lived at the well. And all of your wells are someplace else. A well that is sometimes uncomfortable, a well that is sometimes hot, and a well that is sometimes Samaritan. That there is living water that springs up in us, that brings new life. And that new life needs to be shared with others. The new life that is a changed life, that others see Christ in us. And my friends, it's not about having all the right Bible answers. It's not having 20 seminary degrees or leading 15 small groups or that you memorized all your Iwana verses. Those are all great. If you want to do that, but it's not about that. It is the story and what Christ has done in your life that needs to be shared with others. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus tells his disciples, Go! He says, go. He, he doesn't say, figure this out first and then go. He puts them on mission immediately. As you leave here today, you are on mission. You don't need to stop by the small group Bible study uh, cafe and, and get some answers as you walk out. You're on mission. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Go. And so the challenge is a two-part challenge. What kind of junk ha- ha- are you hanging on to? You see, when the woman left, she left. Her jar, her most important possession that morning, she left that at the well to go share. And some of us hang on to this stuff, and we need to let go of that stuff. Where is your well? That's a question you need to ask. All of our wells are in different places. Where is it that you need to go and love others as Christ so loved you? And just like last week's story of Legion. This is a story of mercy and grace. A mercy and grace that Jesus shows with an incredible humility. That God loves the least of these. He loves a demon-possessed man. He loves a Samaritan woman. And he loves you. He loves the least of these. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You are the least of these, and God has called you to this. God chose the least of this world so that we can bring glory to him, not to me. And maybe you're sitting here today, maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Maybe you have trusted Christ as Savior, and your focus is out. And you're saying right now, There is no way that God could love me because my life is so jacked up. Just before Christmas, I had a student come into my office, and they had gotten in some trouble and been a knucklehead. Um, And in our conversation, they looked at me, and they said these words, and I say these words, and I almost get teary-eyed saying them to you. But they said, "There, there is no way that God can love me. I broke my heart is because God is love. First John four tells us this: God is love. That is his being. And no matter what you have done in your life, God loves you as much as he can ever love you. And no matter what good you do in your life, God loves you as much as he can love you. You can't do anything to increase or decrease the love that is of God. And he loves you. And if you're here today and you say, God can't love me. He does love you. And he wants you to be called today to his mercy and his grace. To include you into his saving plan of salvation. And there's others of you who may be sitting here today saying, you know what? That's great. You read the Bible every day and you're in ministry. So you need to go to my well. No, you need to go to your own well. don't worry if you're going to mess it up at least you're going the samaritan woman shared her small her story she didn't stop at the seminary she didn't stop at the bible study she didn't stop anywhere she went to share her story a story of a life redeemed by grace and mercy of jesus When Jesus sat down that day, he didn't pull out a miracle and put up a blow-up camel and, you know, a, a church sign that said, What's missing in your life? It's me, Jesus. No. Jesus showed up. And he changed her world, and he changes our world. And it's about grace. And it's about this love that he came to die for our sins. And we have embraced that. All of our stories are different. And those are the stories that need to be shared at the well that's in your life. So go in the power of the Holy Spirit and share what Christ has done for you. And share it at your well, wherever that is. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the Samaritan woman. We thank you for, most of all, Jesus, how he just changes our lives radically. We want to get it all confused and all messed up. And he just says, stop. Worship me. Put your focus on me because I love you so much I died for your sins. And, God, may we be so excited and overwhelmed with that that we don't want to hold it in, but we want to share it wherever that may be. And so we give that to you in Jesus' name. Amen.